Letters on the English. Letter 8. On the Parliament. The members of the English Parliament are fond of comparing themselves to the old Romans. Not long since Mr. Shippen opened a speech in the House of Commons with these words, the majesty of the people of England would be wounded. The singularity of the expression occasioned a loud laugh, but this gentleman, so far from being disconcerted, repeated the same words with a resolute tone of voice, and the laugh ceased. In my opinion, the majesty of the people of England has nothing in common with that of the people of Rome, much less is there any affinity between their governments. There is in London a Senate, some of the members whereof are accused, doubtless very unjustly, of selling their voices on certain occasions, as was done in Rome, this is the only resemblance. Besides, the two nations appear to me quite opposite in character, with regard both to good and evil. The Romans never knew the dreadful folly of religious wars, an abomination reserved for devout preachers of patience and humility. Marius and Sylla, Caesar and Pompey, Anthony and Augustus, did not draw their swords and set the world in a blaze merely to determine whether the flamen should wear his shirt over his robe, or his robe over his shirt, or whether the sacred chickens should eat and drink, or eat only, in order to take the augury. The English have hanged one another by law, and cut one another to pieces in pitched battles, for quarrels of as trifling nature. The sects of the Episcopalians and Presbyterians quite distracted these very serious heads for a time. But I fancy they will hardly ever be so silly again, they seeming to be grown wiser at their own expense, and I do not perceive the least inclination in them to murder one another merely about syllogisms, as some zealots among them once did. But here follows a more essential difference between Rome and England, which gives the advantage entirely to the later, viz., that the civil wars of Rome ended in slavery, and those of the English in liberty. The English are the only people upon earth who have been able to prescribe limits to the power of kings by resisting them, and who, by a series of struggles, have at last established that wise government where the prince is all-powerful to do good, and, at the same time, is restrained from committing evil where the nobles are great without insolence, though there are no vassals, and where the people share in the government without confusion. The House of Lords and that of the Commons divide the legislative power under the king, but the Romans had no such balance. The patricians and plebeians in Rome were perpetually at variance, and there was no intermediate power to reconcile them. The Roman Senate, who were so unjustly, so criminally proud as not to suffer the plebeians to share with them in anything, could find no other artifice to keep the latter out of the administration than by employing them in foreign wars. They considered the plebeians as a wild beast, whom it behoved them to let loose upon their neighbors, for fear they should devour their masters. Thus the greatest defect in the government of the Romans raised them to be conquerors. By being unhappy at home, they triumphed over and possessed themselves of the world, till at last their divisions sunk them to slavery. The government of England will never rise to so exalted a pitch of glory, nor will its end be so fatal. The English are not fired with the splendid folly of making conquests, but would only prevent their neighbors from conquering. They are not only jealous of their own liberty, but even of that of other nations. The English were exasperated against Louis XIV. For no other reason but because he was ambitious, and declared war against him merely out of levity, not from any interested motives. The English have doubtless purchased their liberties at a very high price, and waded through seas of blood to drown the idol of arbitrary power. Other nations have been involved in as great calamities, and have shed as much blood, but then the blood they split in defense of their liberties only enslaved them the more. That which rises to a revolution in England is no more than a sedition in other countries. 
a city in Spain, in Barbary, or in Turkey, takes up arms in defense of its privileges, when immediately it is stormed by mercenary troops, it is punished by executioners, and the rest of the nation kiss the chains they are loaded with. The French are of opinion that the government of this island is more tempestuous than the sea which surrounds it, which indeed is true, but then it is never so but when the king raises the storm, when he attempts to seize the ship of which he is only the chief pilot. The civil wars of France lasted longer, were more cruel, and productive of greater evils than those of England, but none of these civil wars had a wise and prudent liberty for their object. In the detestable reigns of Charles IX and Henry III, the whole affair was only whether the people should be slaves to the guises. With regard to the last war of Paris, it deserves only to be hooted at. Methinks I see a crowd of schoolboys rising up in arms against their master, and afterwards whipped for it. Cardinal de Retz, who was witty and brave, but to no purpose, rebellious without a cause, factious without design, and head of a defenseless party, caballed for caballing's sake, and seemed to foment the civil war merely out of diversion. The Parliament did not know what he intended, nor what he did not intend. He levied troops by act of Parliament, and the next moment cashiered them. He threatened, he begged pardon, he set a price upon Cardinal Mazarin's head, and afterwards congratulated him in a public manner. Our civil wars under Charles VI were bloody and cruel, those of the League execrable, and that of the Frondeurs ridiculous. Footnote 1. Frondeurs, in its proper sense slingers, and figuratively cavillers, or lovers of contradiction, was a name given to a league or party that opposed the French ministry, i.e. Cardinal Mazarin, in 1648. End of footnote 1. That for which the French chiefly reproach the English nation as the murder of King Charles I, whom his subjects treated exactly as he would have treated them had his reign been prosperous. After all, consider on one side Charles I, defeated in a pitched battle, imprisoned, tried, sentenced to die in Westminster Hall, and then beheaded. And on the other, the Emperor Henry VII, poisoned by his chaplain at his receiving the sacrament, Henry III, stabbed by a monk, thirty assassinations projected against Henry IV, several of them put in execution, and the last bereaving that great monarch of his life. Way, I say, all these wicked attempts and then judge. Letter 9. On the government. That mixture in the English government, that harmony between king, lords, and commons, did not always subsist. England was enslaved for a long series of years by the Romans, the Saxons, the Danes, and the French successively. William the Conqueror particularly, ruled them with a rod of iron. He disposed as absolutely of the lives and fortunes of his conquered subjects as an eastern monarch, and forbade, upon pain of death, the English either fire or candle in their houses after eight o'clock, whether he did this to prevent their nocturnal meetings, or only to try, by this odd and whimsical prohibition, how far it was possible for one man to extend his power over his fellow creatures. It is true, indeed, that the English had parliaments before and after William the Conqueror, and they boast of them, as though these assemblies then called parliaments, composed of ecclesiastical tyrants and of plunderers entitled barons, had been the guardians of the public liberty and happiness. The barbarians who came from the shores of the Baltic, and settled in the rest of Europe, brought with them the form of government called states or parliaments, about which so much noise is made, and which are so little understood. Kings, indeed, were not absolute in those days, but then the people were more wretched upon that very account, and more completely enslaved. The chiefs of these savages, who had laid waste France, Italy, Spain, and England, made themselves monarchs. 
their generals divided among themselves the several countries they had conquered, when sprung those margraves, those peers, those barons, those petty tyrants, who often contested with their sovereigns for the spoils of whole nations. These were birds of prey fighting with an eagle for doves whose blood the victorious was to suck. Every nation, instead of being governed by one master, was trampled upon by a hundred tyrants. The priests soon played a part among them. Before this it had been the fate of the Gauls, the Germans, and the Britons, to be always governed by their druids and the chiefs of their villages, an ancient kind of barons, not so tyrannical as their successors. These druids pretended to be mediators between God and man. They enacted laws, they fulminated their excommunications, and sentenced to death. The bishops succeeded, by insensible degrees, to their temporal authority in the Goth and Vandal government. The popes set themselves at their head, and armed with their briefs, their bulls, and reinforced by monks, they made even kings tremble, deposed and assassinated them at pleasure, and employed every artifice to draw into their own purses monies from all parts of Europe. The weak Ina, one of the tyrants of the Saxon heptarchy in England, was the first monarch who submitted, in his pilgrimage to Rome, to pay St. Peter's penny equivalent very near to a French crown for every house in his dominions. The whole island soon followed his example, England became insensibly one of the Pope's provinces, and the Holy Father used to send from time to time his legates thither to levy exorbitant taxes. At last King John delivered up by a public instrument the Kingdom of England to the Pope, who had excommunicated him, but the barons, not finding their account in this resignation, dethroned the wretched King John and seated Louis, father to St. Louis, King of France, in his place. However, they were soon weary of their new monarch, and accordingly obliged him to return to France. Whilst that the barons, the bishops, and the popes, all laid waste England, where all were for ruling, the most numerous, the most useful, even the most virtuous, and consequently the most venerable part of mankind, consisting of those who study the laws and the sciences, of traitors, of artificers, in a word, of all who were not tyrants, that is, those who are called the people, these, I say, were by them looked upon as so many animals beneath the dignity of the human species. The commons in those ages were far from sharing in the government, they being villains or peasants, whose labor, whose blood, were the property of their masters who entitled themselves the nobility. The major part of men in Europe were at that time what they are to this day in several parts of the world, they were villains or bondsmen of lords, that is, a kind of cattle bought and sold with the land. Many ages passed away before justice could be done to human nature, before mankind were conscious that it was abominable for many to sow, and but few reap. And was not France very happy, when the power and authority of those petty robbers was abolished by the lawful authority of kings and of the people? Happily, in the violent shocks which the divisions between kings and the nobles gave to empires, the chains of nations were more or less heavy. Liberty in England sprang from the quarrels of tyrants. The barons forced King John and King Henry III to grant the famous Magna Charta, the chief design of which was indeed to make kings dependent on the lords, but then the rest of the nation were a little favored in it, in order that they might join on proper occasions with their pretended masters. This great charter, which is considered as the sacred origin of the English liberties, shows in itself how little liberty was known. The title alone proves that the king thought he had a just right to be absolute and that the barons, and even the clergy, forced him to give up the pretended right, for no other reason but because they were the most powerful. Magna Charta begins in this style, we grant, of our own free will, the following privileges to the archbishops, bishops, priors, and barons of our kingdom, etc. 
The House of Commons is not once mentioned in the Articles of this Charter, a proof that it did not yet exist, or that it existed without power. Mention is therein made, by name, of the Freemen of England, a melancholy proof that some were not so. It appears, by Article 32, that these pretended freemen owed service to their lords. Such a liberty as this was not many removes from slavery. By Article 21, the king ordains that his officers shall not henceforward seize upon, unless they pay for them, the horses and carts of freemen. The people considered this ordinance as a real liberty, though it was a greater tyranny. Henry VII, that happy usurper and great politician, who pretended to love the barons, though he in reality hated and feared them, got their lands alienated. By this means the villains, afterwards acquiring riches by their industry, purchased the estates and country seats of the illustrious peers who had ruined themselves by their folly and extravagance, and all the lands got by insensible degrees into other hands. The power of the House of Commons increased every day. The families of the ancient peers were at last extinct, and as peers only are properly noble in England, there would be no such thing in strictness of law as nobility in that island, had not the kings created new barons from time to time, and preserved the body of peers, once a terror to them, to oppose them to the commons, since become so formidable. All these new peers who compose the higher house receive nothing but their titles from the king, and very few of them have estates in those places whence they take their titles. One shall be Duke of D, though he has not a foot of land in Dorsetshire, and another is Earl of a village, though he scarce knows where it is situated. The peers have power, but it is only in the Parliament House. There is no such thing here as Ote, Moyenne, and Boss Justice, that is, a power to judge in all matters civil and criminal, nor a right or privilege of hunting in the grounds of a citizen, who at the same time is not permitted to fire a gun in his own field. No one is exempted in this country from paying certain taxes because he is a nobleman or a priest. All duties and taxes are settled by the House of Commons, whose power is greater than that of the peers, though inferior to it in dignity. The spiritual as well as temporal lords have the liberty to reject a money bill brought in by the commons, but they are not allowed to alter anything in it, and must either pass or throw it out without restriction. When the bill has passed the lords and is signed by the king, then the whole nation pays, every man in proportion to his revenue or estate, not according to his title, which would be absurd. There is no such thing as an arbitrary subsidy or poll tax, but a real tax on the lands, of all which an estimate was made in the reign of the famous King William III. The land tax continues still upon the same foot, though the revenue of the lands is increased. Thus no one is tyrannized over, and every one is easy. The feet of the peasants are not bruised by wooden shoes, they eat white bread, are well clothed, and are not afraid of increasing their stock of cattle, nor of tiling their houses from any apprehension that their taxes will be raised the year following. The annual income of the estates of a great many commoners in England amounts to 200,000 livres, and yet these do not think it beneath them to plough the lands which enrich them, and on which they enjoy their liberty. Letter 10. On Trade. As trade enriched the citizens in England, so it contributed to their freedom, and this freedom on the other side extended their commerce, whence arose the grandeur of the state. Trade raised by insensible degrees the naval power, which gives the English a superiority over the seas, and they now are masters of very near 200 ships of war. Posterity will very probably be surprised to hear that an island whose only produce is a little lead, tin, fuller's earth, and coarse wool, should become so powerful by its commerce, as to be able to send, in 1723, three fleets at the same time to three different and far distanced parts of the globe.
one before Gibraltar, conquered and still possessed by the English, a second to Portobello, to dispossess the King of Spain of the treasures of the West Indies, and a third into the Baltic, to prevent the northern powers from coming to an engagement. At the time when Louis XIV made all Italy tremble, and that his armies, which had already possessed themselves of Savoy and Piedmont, were upon the point of taking Turin, Prince Eugene was obliged to march from the middle of Germany in order to succor Savoy. Having no money, without which cities cannot be either taken or defended, he addressed himself to some English merchants. These, at an hour and a half's warning, lent him five millions, whereby he was enabled to deliver Turin, and to beat the French, after which he wrote the following short letter to the persons who had disbursed him the above-mentioned sums, Gentlemen, I received your money, and flatter myself that I have laid it out to your satisfaction. Such a circumstance as this raises a just pride in an English merchant, and makes him presume, not without some reason, to compare himself to a Roman citizen, and, indeed, a peer's brother does not think traffic beneath him. When the Lord Townsend was Minister of State, a brother of his was content to be a city merchant, and at the time that the Earl of Oxford governed Great Britain, his younger brother was no more than a factor in Aleppo, where he chose to live, and where he died. This custom, which begins, however, to be laid aside, appears monstrous to Germans, vainly puffed up with their extraction. These think it morally impossible that the son of an English peer should be no more than a rich and powerful citizen, for all are princes in Germany. There have been thirty highnesses of the same name, all whose patrimony consisted only in their escutcheons and their pride. In France the title of Marquis is given gratis to anyone who will accept of it, and whosoever arrives at Paris from the midst of the most remote provinces with money in his purse, and a name terminating in A.C. or ill, may strut about, and cry, such a man as I. A man of my rank and figure, and may look down upon a traitor with sovereign contempt, whilst the traitor on the other side, by thus often hearing his profession treated so disdainfully, is fool enough to blush at it. However, I need not say which is most useful to a nation, a lord, powdered in the tip of the mode, who knows exactly at what o'clock the king rises and goes to bed, and who gives himself airs of grandeur and state, at the same time that he is acting the slave in the antechamber of a prime minister, or a merchant, who enriches his country, dispatches orders from his counting-house to Surat and Grand Cairo, and contributes to the felicity of the world.